sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Michael writes the show. He hit us up at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. He says, one bit of rock lore that I've always wondered about, one that I've heard about since I was a kid, is this one that always seemed to start with, so X and Y, or, you know, name two artists, were having a gross-out contest. And in the days before the internet, lots of reported incidents were matter-of-factly chalked up to, quote-unquote, gross-up contest. Gross-out contest. And I've always wondered if there ever was a real on-stage gross-out contest between two or more artists like the rumors suggested? Or were they all just imagining that random gross rock star happenings that we heard about had some deeper significance? What can like you tell movie, me about this? Like the movie Stand By Me. Remember the pie-eating contest? Oh, yeah, yeah, And that, yeah, was, yeah. Fi- that was fictional within a fictional movie. But template r- rumors, like this oh, is yeah, something yeah, we've yeah, talked yeah, about. Yeah. You, were, you were talking with Phil about it. Right. Phil Medley and I, I think, we turned this way back on like episode 89 when we were chatting about Marilyn Manson because there were all these rumors that floated around Marilyn Manson that had been part of the lore around Alice Cooper and part of the lore around... Ozzy Osbourne, you know, it's just you take yeah. one set of shock rock rumors and you just apply them to several people. So yeah, we talked about his ribs, which was a thing that got applied to several people generationally. I think if you know that idea of a rock star getting a rib removed, you know it from different rock stars. But yeah. for for my generation, it was definitely Marilyn Manson. And then there was the whole thing about him being on the Wonder Years, right? Yeah, which was I immediately at that point knew I was like, well, that's bullshit. <laughs> It's the one that comes to mind, like Michael wanted to know if the, the general idea this has ever happened, but the first thing that went in my mind with the letter is, is Ozzy. Ozzy and the ants. Right. And I, of course, know nothing about this subject. In 1984 on the Shout at the Devil tour, when, <laughs> when Motley Crue is opening up for Ozzy, they ran out of Coke. And so it became a gross out contest. Uh, so Ozzy got down and took a straw and snorted a bunch of uh, ants. At least that's what they say. And that's in the dirt, which give or take whether that's actually true or not right so here's the deal yes you bring up a great point it is in the dirt so if we were saying that the dirt which is motley Crue's book that's like they, they each take turns talking uh it's in the netflix movie they filmed this scene so mm. people sort of accept it as being true it is indeed a gross out contest of some sort uh, I, I saw versions when I looked this up, though, that were slightly altered from the version that that makes it in the dirt and involved a popsicle stick in the early hours of the morning, like they found the popsicle stick and it had sugar or whatever on it. And so there were ants all over the popsicle stick. So he picks up the popsicle stick. And then this is Nikki talking in the dirt quote. I saw a long column of ants marching to a little sand dugout where the pavement met the dirt. And as I thought, no, he wouldn't. He did. He put the straw to his nose and he sent the entire line of ants tickling up his nose with a single monstrous snort. And since we're all going gross out, thanks, Michael, for your letter. I'm pretty happy about it. Um, The story is that then he pees on the ground, licks it up, and challenges Nikki to do the same. Which is the contest part of this, right? And I should just go ahead and say that if the idea of urine and people consuming things coming out of other people's bodies grosses you out, you might skip this episode. I mean, I don't want you to skip this episode, but I'm just giving you a little bit of a warning here that we are talking about gross stuff. That's the subject. Yeah, you could just, I mean, if you want to, you can hit pause here, start watching Love at First Sight, or whatever it is that's going to make you happy. (laughs) 
Um, so anyway, so if any of that freaks you out, like heads up warning, we're going to be talking about all kinds of bodily fluid stuff happening. But anyway, Motley Crue says this is true, but there are stern clips, which there are on the, the show notes where it doesn't really stick well to the details of the book. And Ozzy doesn't remember the 1984 by his own admission. I wonder why or how he remembers any decade really until it got sober uh, at that point. And J.K. Lee, who clearly hates Sharon and Ozzy, he disputes that that <laughs> never happened. Yeah, he says, quote, I was there. I never saw ants. It's funny, though, because I thought he was just going to say the whole story was false. This is actually what he says. I was there. I was right there. He snorted a spider, which is pretty weird. I, I don't feel like that takes away that much from the story. But he goes on to say, there was not a trail of fucking ants. Tommy Lee says it. Nikki says it. Ozzy says it. But they were fucked up. I was not. I, listen to how he paints himself the victim, was just trying to get a fucking suntan. That is all I was doing. They were getting fucked up. Ozzy snorted a little tiny spider that was crawling across. There were no ants. There were no ants. I don't care what the other guys say. There were no ants. <laughs> I really like Jake Lee on that Ultimate Sin record. Thought he was great. This is such a passionate response to it really is, dude. Yeah, like, nah, I ain't, it ain't ants. It's a spider. So this sets the scene nicely for this discussion. Is this a templated rumor that Ozzy and your boys and Motley Crue were just filling in with their own sort of animal behavior paint by numbers? Like, I, that's sort of what we want to figure out, right? Are there versions of this gross-out contest, this sort of showdown, that happened before this that they may either consciously or, or subconsciously be emulating. That's what we wanted to find out for Michael. Right. And the short answer. Give it to me. Frank is Frank Zappa. <laughs> yeah. Right. In almost 200 episodes, we have no. not spent enough time on Frank Zappa. Uh, we we no. talked on him. We talked about him briefly way back on episode 49. We talked about the story that inspired the deep purple classic smoke on the water. Mm -hmm. Excellent story. Excellent episode, if I do say so Gosh, myself. He was an one of my favorites. Yeah. I love that story. He he was an integral part of that tale because he is on stage when a lot of that chaos is happening. But we've never done a deep dive. What what's your relationship to Zappa's music? Yeah, um, just completely ignorant of it until I was in my mid twenties and I was in college, um, and I had some friends of mine that were music majors, um, and you know I live vicariously through them, including my pal Doug, who bought Zappa's first guitar <laughs> at an auction last year. Oh, wow. So kind of likes, yeah, he bought his, he bought his guitar. He bought a Hammond organ that, that someone in the mothers used to play. And should, got, should we conference Doug in? I feel like we're missing an expert opportunity here. I think we bring him in. Where we're not going to talk about this subject of what we're going to talk about <laughs> today, which is like, when we, we want to get a, we, want to we actually want to talk about his music, right? Yeah. We want to talk about P and Poo and Frank Zappa. Are you in? That's a bad so, bitch. I've always just known Frank Zappa's name and weird facts about him. A very little relationship with his music. I remember hearing being told as a young person that he named his kids weird names. That was like yeah. the main thing I knew about him for a long time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Moon, uh, Moon Unit and uh, yeah. Dweezil. Totally. Yeah. Dweezil. Yeah. The first thing to know about Zappa, if you're unfamiliar, is it categorically categorically indisputably he's an amazing musician he's obsessed with music arguably arguably the most talented american composer of the 20th century i know it's oh. wild it's i i i had underestimated his musical knowledge and what a big deal he really is and he was across a lot of genres which i also didn't realize yeah and his parents got a record player in the 50s 
And when he was in high school, he gets interested simultaneously in black R and B and classical leaning composers. Okay, so, so his influences are really early on and different. Here, here's something I learned about him too, right? And I think this sort of sticks true throughout rock history in a lot of cases. Oddball recognizes Oddball, right? I, right. I read, I read this story that what actually got Zappa paying attention to classical music was not. Stravinsky, unlike a lot of what we've been hearing on the show recently, though I do think he was into him. Uh, what he heard about this composer, and what he heard about this guy was that he was very hard to listen to, and so he got really intrigued. He hadn't heard the guy's music, and his name was Edgar Vares. Vares, and, and yeah. have you ever heard of this guy? I heard of the letter before uh, I heard of the guy. So I heard the the lore about what he did. Right. So not very many people know anything about this dude. He was a French composer. His music was mostly like kind of hard to listen to. They they it was about rhythm and they had to come up with this term. It, it, they called it quote organized sound. He had all these ideas about sound as living matter and his musical space is open rather than bounded and he was famous for posing this question where he would ask, "What is music but organized noises?" So I'm assuming you can catch the vibe here and see how it might connect with Frank Zappa. In short, this guy was a bit of an eccentric. Yeah. And if you're, you want to dive into the Zappa catalog, you will realize if you listen to an album front to back, I'm dating myself using the word album, but here we go. You, you realize really quickly, there's no rules. Oh, there's no, like all of these songs have it are under three minutes and they're in the four, four tempo. Like, nope. No, nope, nope. none of that. Yeah, nope. that, that's a really good cheeky, way to put it. Uh-huh. Cheeky, uh-huh. kind of funny. Um, there's a lot of humor that's injected into it. Some of it that's that's borderline offensive. Um, so yeah, you totally mentioned no the letter. Words. You mentioned the letter. Yeah. And that's my favorite part of the story, which is that Frank and Edgar, uh, they are alive at the same time, briefly. Like, Edgar's way older than Frank, but they, they do overlap in life. And so, because he doesn't die until 65. So Frank, hearing this music and feeling a kinship, finally feeling, I feel like this was like me hearing MXPX for the first time. You hearing Crew or whoever it was that blew your mind. You know what I mean? Like Frank hears this and he's like, I'm understood. There is somebody else out there who like processes things differently than me. So he tries to get in touch with this guy. The dude is French. He lives across the world. He gets obsessed with medium. A 16-year-old kid in 1956 that's frank zappa he takes a shot at getting this guy's attention by calling him on the phone i actually think he's 15 when this happens and he there's confusion i'm not sure they even speak the same language he gets his wife maybe it's like a whole thing it like sort of causes a disturbance at the house and then he writes him a letter and we i cannot believe we found this but we actually and it's in the show notes you can read one of the letters that he writes this guy read this yeah Yeah. Okay. So here's the letter. Dear sir, perhaps you might remember me from my stupid phone call last January. If not, my name again is Frank Zappa Jr. I'm the asshole who called you at random and tried to speak English. I am 16 years old. That might explain partly my disturbing you last winter. The reason for my letter at this at this time is that I'm visiting relatives in Baltimore. And as long as I'm on the East Coast, I hope I can get to see you. It might seem strange, but ever since I was 13, I've been interested in your music. The whole thing stems from the time when I, when the keeper of this little record store sold me your record, the complete works of, uh, has, what's his last name? Edward. Uh, v- v- Varez. Varez. Varez, yeah. And it's volume one. And the only 
reason I knew it existed was that an article in either Look or the Post mentioned it as being noisy, unmusical, and only good for trying out the sound system in high fidelity <laughs> units. I don't know how the store uh, had it, uh, how I got it, or how it, I ever got to obtain it, but after several hearings, I became curious. And I bought it. It was $5.40, which at the time seemed awfully high. And being so young kept me broke for three weeks. (laughs) Now, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I'm looking around for another copy as this one is very worn and scratchy. What an awesome letter. And it keeps going. Uh, He... he that's not the whole letter. That's not the whole letter. You can read that in the show notes. You can also read an article he writes about this whole situation later in 1971 for Stereo Review. That story's a little different. He tells the story a little differently than he actually lays it out in this letter, which makes me question. I mean, if this is the letter he sent him, this seems like it would be the more accurate version. He embellishes the story in the Stereo Review to the extent of talking about sort of like going into the store uh, and talking to the guy who works in the store and asking him if they had this, and, and the guy going, oh, I, I, we have a copy of that, but we only use it to test the hi-fis. And so there's a whole you know, like longer version of the story. Read both of those things. It's very, very interesting. But just know this. This French weirdo did a lot to inspire this music-obsessed <laughs> kid in California to become a weirdo himself. <laughs> and, and what I mean is from a very young age, Frank realized that he didn't need to stick to it. And he said, this is what you said. You said there are no rules. And, and most people, just in general, in any industry, in any interest, they get into that and they look at the people who came before them and they go, okay, that's how you do it, I guess. And they may expand, they may change some things, they may wear, you know, they may become a character named Ziggy Stardust or they may, you know, like there's things you do, but very few people throw all the rules out or just decide there are no rules. But that's what Frank Zappa did. And Frank Zappa was empowered to do that by watching this French composer that no one had ever heard of who who was into organized sound. Yeah. And think about people who uh, were like when before the Internet and if you had a song, you wanted it played on the radio uh, song can't be. Stairway to heaven long stairway to heaven's like its own exception to the rule, but you had to have songs that are kind of shorter. Like you had to think about what the factory is going to put out. You had to think about the the commodity. You had to, you had to think about the capitalism. You had to think about what the system, Frank didn't care about any of that. No, he didn't care, but they never met, right? No, the two of them. Now, Varese does respond to the letter. And Frank says in the 1971 piece that at that time, he said he still had it framed because it was that important to him. Yeah, and this I remember because I remember there was the letter. I remember that he had the letter from the guy, and he had it framed. That's the that's the piece I knew. I didn't really know who he was, but so Frank starts trying to both play in bands and compose classical music while still a freaking teenager, and while he will have periods of more normal musical output, most of what he really grabs his attention will always be the avant-garde. He makes money scoring low-budget films, but by 64, he's getting obsessed with technical aspects of recording, overdubs, and tape uh, manipulation. More, more evidence of the reputation and lore that will build up around Zappa. Do you know the story about his arrest in the early 60s? Yes, I do. I watched the, the documentary about Frank Zappa. is phenomenal. Is this the Alex, the Alex Winter documentary? Uh, yeah, it's so good. And, and from that, like I just started reading, like once I get a documentary, I'm, there's someone I'm kind of interested in that I didn't know that much about, then I kind of dig around a little bit. And I knew, I always felt like, <laughs> 
I always felt like a guy that like likes classical music, but I don't like Bach. Like that's how it made me feel that I didn't like Zappa. So I wanted to at least know more about, yeah, yeah. about him. But yeah, he, uh, he got arrested and it was awesome. Yeah, so just the, here's the real quick cliff notes on this. The, the police are watching him because they can't figure out what he's doing. He has this studio and he's not living a normal life really, right? Like he's sort of obsessed and he's spending a lot of time there. They're not really – at some point somebody tips him off or somebody is noticing his behavior. So they're watching him. And one day – this guy comes to the studio and he asks if Frank can make him an audio tape for a bachelor party. And he says, here's what I want on this tape. I want it to sound like people are having sex. And so Zappa's all about having fun in the studio. He didn't care. So he and his girlfriend at the time, they record some moans and some grunts and they make some squeaky bed sounds, do some Foley art, which is hilarious. They put it all on a cassette and then they call the guy back and they're like, here, come get your cassette. And when they, when the guy shows up, it's like a freaking. (laughs) <laughs> like the SWAT team shows up. Now it's the vice squad. They burst into the studio. They arrest him on a felony charge of, cons- this is a thing, apparently, conspiracy to commit pornography. Did not know you could commit that. Uh, but it was it was all totally a setup. This was just the police trying to figure out because they were uncomfortable with what, what they thought Frank was doing. It's an amazing charge for a person <laughs> to get arrested for. You got I arrested wonder, like- for what? <laughs> Committing pornography. I wonder if uh, 40 years ago, if I was driving around town just playing me so horny as loud as it would go with all the windows down in my car, I'd just drive around the police station. Would, would I get that charge? Maybe. So for Frank, there's a trial and everything. The judge literally laughs, though. They play the tape. <laughs> Can you imagine me and this judge? He's supposed to be hardcore, and he's just like, okay, that, that's funny. Uh, so he's like, listen, we're just going to drop it to a misdemeanor. But you can see how all these experiences coalesce with Zappa's interests and his worldview, and, and it starts to form the kind of artist he's going to become. Yeah, and this is so significant with this time period. It's around this time that Zappa joins a band. They're called the Soul Giants, and fairly quickly, he kind of takes it over, and it becomes his band playing his music. They get their first gig to get together on May 10th, '65 which was Mother's Day. So they decided to go on stage with the moniker The Mothers. And And that's where that name came from. They make a couple of important associations very quickly. One, manager Herb Herb Cohen, who becomes a problem later, uh, but is good at first. And the second with producer Tom Wilson, who had been producing Dylan in Simon and Garfunkel. So you're talking about one of the heavy hitters at the time. Tom actually will take Frank and the band not to a rock and roll record label. He decides instead to get mm-hmm. them signed at Verve, which is a yeah. big deal. That's a modern jazz label. And Verve has them change the name from the Mothers, because they're worried people are going to think it's short for motherfucker. And instead, mm-hmm. they become the, the mothers, mothers of Invention. Of yeah, yeah. And the band will go on to make something like 60-plus records. I mean, just think about that just piling all that music out zapper will produce a lot of these himself and they will develop a reputation for being quote unquote different yeah, <laughs> than yeah, yeah. other musical now, acts. here's here's a thing that gets lost right so part of the reason they're different is that they become part and parcel to this idea of of this thing called the freak scene and the closest i can think to like if you're a younger music fan i say I say younger. I mean, like, my age. If, if you're 30 or 40, you might remember Freak Folk. 
Like that's there was like a reemergence of this mm. in the last ten or fifteen years. People like Joanna Newsom, um, Donovan Frankenfurter. You know these, these that that's as close as we've had in modern music of sort of this freak scene. But read how they described the freak scene in in this far out article when Zappa was yeah, a part and, of it. And neither one of the two artists you name were having as much fun as these lunatics. Mm-mm. Come on, man. This is my kind of freakiness. Almost a precursor to the hippie movement, Zappa and his wife, Gail, were ardent members of the freak scene. The self-styled freaks were bored and disillusioned with suburbia. They set up base in Laurel Canyon, lived in a semi-communal lifestyle that involved quirky clothing, total sexual freedom, and enjoyed a kind of bizarre, frenetic dancing that became known as freaking out i'm freaking out man uh, yeah so note how the dancing is described audiences at his shows were encouraged to freak out and go wild in the crowd screaming and doing whatever kind of strange movement came to them at the moment on a personal level wrote zappa freaking out is a process whereby an individual casts off outmoded and restricted standards of thinking dress and social etiquette in order to express creatively his relationship to his environment and the social structure as a whole amen but Freaks freak people out. And, and that's important for this conversation because when you don't understand something, it is easy to either romanticize it or villainize it. Yeah. And so as more people heard Zappa and didn't understand Zappa, couldn't categorize him, a rumor started. And that rumor was one time that Frank Zappa got into a gross-out contest on stage. Oh, Michael, we're here. Welcome. We found it Michael, for you. This is it. Thank you. Michael, thank you for your letter. We are now at the part where we're going to take the left turn with grossness. Okay, so you you asked for this. Buckle in. Okay, where, where you hear this story or who you hear this story from is going to dictate some of the details typically. There are a lot of versions of it out there, but most of them consist of something like this, and I'm just going to try to be as tasteful as possible. Uh, either Frank Zappa went to the bathroom, number two style, on stage... Or, and this one is actually more common, Frank Zappa's opponent in said gross-out contest went number two, and Frank, not to be outdone, ate it. Yes, and there is a term for this that is coprophasia. 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 Coprophasia is what that is. Um, I do want you guys to know that our podcast has taken a definite, like, uh, we're freaking out. If we were doing a dance right now, we'd be freaking out. That's what we're doing. Okay, well, while everyone is dwelling on that for a moment, feels like we could hit pause here for a, for a moment for personal reflection. I think guys of a certain age, especially when unchecked, can be pretty disgusting. Uh, oh, I, yeah. I was not in a fraternity. You were not in a fraternity, right? No. But no. I, I know a lot of guys who were, and I've heard a lot of stories. But I want to know from you, Murdoch, did you ever at any age participate in something that could be construed as a gross-out contest? Okay, I wish I could remember who it was, and that's bad. But I, I didn't. I wasn't in the gross-out contest. I just stood there while someone tried to attempt to drink a gallon of milk. Oh, see, yes, this is a thing. Like, I can totally drink a gallon of milk. It's like, oh yeah, show us. Um, <laughs> like how it's like the meanest freaking trick. Like it doesn't make any sense. Like a rational. If you're in, if you just got dropped off on the planet, you got the cliff notes. <laughs> And, and they onboard you to like live here. No one's going to say this amount of liquid when you drive, put it in your stomach is going to make you vomit. It's all no thick and milky. It doesn't yeah. make sense. So uh, you want to hear something really messed up about this? Yeah. So this was a gross out contest to you. This was Christian church youth group to me. 
They literally did it as a youth group contest one night. They were like, who can do this? With the joke being that we knew whoever attempted to do it was going to vomit at the end. So that's the love of Christ for you, apparently. <laughs> the, the late 90s uh, teenage love of Christ is watching you vomit into a trash can with a gallon of 2%. Absolutely disgusting stuff. I don't think I've ever come close to doing an actual gross-out contest, but the one thing that might get into the ballpark is is like the school cafeteria energy where you, you start combining weird foods together and daring people to mm. consume them. Did you ever do that? Oh yeah, yeah you yeah you mix up everything like a suicide fleshy or whatever. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah that thing totally. I mean, By the way, what happened to the rectangle pizza? <laughs> I mean, who was the who was the the ev- most evil man? They should put him up there with like if they were going to have like a, a monument for terrible people and have Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin. They should have whoever took that out of our public education, <laughs> our public schools. Is they not in school that. cafeterias anymore? That shit was that, delicious. It was freaking good. Dude, I would pay if terrible. you and I could find a bar that would serve that pizza at the lukewarm state where like the cheese wasn't quite melted in the middle. Bro, I'd you know, I'm going there with you tomorrow and we're we're Dude. making a night of it. Or if we had a restaurant, what we would call that menu item? Uh rectangle school pizza that would just be what it's called so no one would everyone would be like oh yeah that's what that is because when it's like fleur fleur de fleur de with tomato like if you try to disguise freaking no 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 call what it is cafeteria pizza be very clear want that pizza call it what it is yeah that's oh my god dude that's speaking of gross but also delicious delicious Uh, so i mean this this brings us to this idea of physically consuming something right that's like the pinnacle gross out move so if we're talking about if you're going to have a gross out contest, the levels of it, the the ultimate level is putting it in your mouth, right? You can mix things, you can rub them on your body, you can put them in your fingers, on your face. But if you put it in your mouth and you swallow it, that's a whole other level. And so it makes sense that a story like this has to feature. So remember, we're not saying this is true, but if you're going to tell a story, then it has to feature the culmination that involves physically consuming, eating it, right? Because that's how it gets disgusting. And this kind of contest has to depend on the other party, though. Like, who are you trying to prove something? Uh, very to? good point. Yeah. And that is where we get a little more into why this story might exist. That's an excellent point. And because this is sort of a template rumor, the participants change depending on who tells you this story. Zappa's the main character almost always because he's the ultimate freak, right? But in terms of who his onstage rival is, that can change. So we need to talk about. Two contenders. Right. I'm going to do my best Uma Thurman uh, impression from Pulp Fiction. Vincent, Vincent. No, we're talking about Alice, Alice <laughs> Cooper. And it feels like it's a reputation match thing. Like, yeah, 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 think yeah, about yeah, these sure, two sure. guys, like total weird, weirdo, total weirdo, right? Who would be crazy enough to do something like that? And the answer is that by reputation, Alice would seem like that's the choice who would do it. Yeah, that's for sure. He So he had a couple of template rumors of his own, namely, and I think we've talked about some of these before, Alice Cooper passing a cup to the first row of the audience, having them spit in it and then pass it back, and then he drinks it. He that drinks was like a it, thing yeah. people said happened at his shows, which didn't happen. Alice Cooper stomping baby chickens on stage. That also yeah. not really a thing that happened. I heard that, but it wasn't baby chickens. I just heard that he stomped on and killed chickens on the stage. So there is a story that actually does happen where like a chicken flies on stage and he throws it into the audience, but he hasn't done anything to it. He just thought it was going to fly off. Yeah. That's Ozzy's excuse too for 
<laughs> things that would get thrown at him. But we are talking about a guy who built his first stage prop guillotine when he was in freaking high school. So like Zappa, he's a magnet for crazy rumors like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is something larger driving his inclusion here in this particular story. It's beef. They've got beef a little yes. bit. That is right. So we haven't even talked about the record labels. So Frank gets a couple in the late 60s. He starts record labels and he signs acts and he will sign Alice Cooper. There is this amazing story that Alice tells in an interview with The Guardian back in like 2012 about how Frank experiences the band for the first time. Read this. I am so excited to read this to you, Michael. I can't believe this is so much fun. Okay, this is the quote. We were playing a big party in L.A. with The Doors, Buffalo, Springfield, Love, all these great bands. We came on next to last because we were the house band. Everybody in the audience was on acid. And, of course, they were grooving on peace and love. And then all of a sudden you hear this. And there's this (laughs) insanity, crazy looking clowns on stage. We scared the hell out of these people. They were all on acid. We looked like we had just come out of the ground and we didn't mind having a little violence on stage. The audience couldn't get out of the room fast enough. It was like someone yelled fire in a theater. There were three people left standing. And those three people were Frank Zappa, my manager, Shep Gordon, and one of the groupies from the GTOs. Frank said, anybody that can clear a room that quick, I've got to sign them. So he does. And this is the kindred spirit thing, right? The the freak matching freak. And Frank is involved in their career and their recordings for a while. We'll just sort of fast forward through this. But eventually, after a three-record deal, they part ways, and it's not really amicable. Yeah, right. And eventually there's a lawsuit between their teams. It cost Alice, unfortunately, he's had a difficult time with money for a lot of his career. It cost him a lot of money and royalties on that early stuff that he was working on. And, and so I do think there's reputation match, like you mentioned. And then there's the business going bad that combine. And they put Alice's name inside this gross out couple with Zappa. But if it is reputation rivalry that are the drivers for a possible onstage Dookie showdown, I actually think the other name that gets attached to this story is more compelling. And, and yep. that name is Don Glenn Vliet, or as the world will come to know him, Captain Beefheart. Gosh, thank goodness for college radio and living in a town that had a college that had record stores so I could <laughs> listen and figure out what the hell that was. And Definitely a curveball for me, too. I didn't know who Captain Beefheart was, and you just have to kind of discover it because they don't play that on the radio. As you might expect, there are many weird details about a guy who will go on to be known by such a strange stage name, but perhaps my favorite is this biographical detail. At mm-hmm. age four, he was considered a child prodigy because he could make sculptures of animals. That's right. Captain Beefheart, when he was <laughs> not even in freaking kindergarten, was sculpting. He was sculpting oh, animals. We actually have links in the show notes to newspaper reports dating back to the 50s when he won contest. It's totally a real thing. It's a real thing. And we have proof. There's so many pictures of getting he looks like a little baby version of Captain Beefheart because he is. <laughs> It's hilarious, man. Yeah. You're like, oh, there's that fat face. All right. You can already see that in creative spirit, Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa have got a lot in common, namely personal intensity and incredibly off-kilter interests that will become obsessions. I came across this sentence in regard to, to a young Captain Beefheart. 
quote, his artistic enthusiasm became so fervent, he said that his parents were forced to feed him through the door in the room where he sculpted. And in much the same way that Zappa found that composer that he admired and learned from and made classical compositions as a teen, Beefheart will claim he was tutored by a legendary sculptor and he was giving art institute lectures at the lovely age of 11. But a lot of the Beefheart story just comes from Beefheart. So like uh, that sentence I read earlier was like he said that his parents forced were forced to feed him through the door. His parents didn't say that. He said it. What is true and what is posturing can get a little murky when you're talking about the Beefheart background. For example, he famously liked to say that he never really attended school. But if you look at the yearbook for Antelope Valley High School in Lancaster, California, you're going to find his photo and you're going to find the photo of one Frank Zappa. Yeah, and it's not just being lone wolf like weirdos like this they have in common. They grow up together. Yeah, they, the story goes that they're pals who partly become pals because of a shared musical interest. By 58, they're actually making music together. They're, they have this project they uh, call Lost in a Whirlpool about a man being flushed down the toilet. That's a thing that, that they did together. They were obsessed with this stuff very early in their lives. Over the next few years, they, they even sort of have a band together called the Soots. And Frank puts Beefheart on his record label, and he helps produce Trout Mask Replica. Re- blah, blah, blah. Trout Mask Replica, which if you name. if you know, I know it really is. If you know anything about Beefheart, you know that record. Uh, and it's still like the landmark piece, and and Frank's all over it. I mean, his fingerprints yeah. are. But at some point in all this. There's a rivalry be- between the two weirdos, right? It's a little unclear as to exactly what causes it. Probably jealousy to some degree. Beefheart is jealous of Zappa's business sense, and Zappa wishes he had more of Beefheart's creativity. I mean, that's definitely one way to think about it, right? And I ran across a story of Zappa being dismissive of Beefheart's desire to marry his girlfriend at some point. Like, he brings his girlfriend, he's like, hey, look, I'm going to marry you, and he... And, Frank Zappa makes some wise crack about it. Who knows? These long friendships that start in high school and grow into adulthood, they can come with some pretty tricky landmines. So basically, for their entire lives, Zappa and Beefheart are, are sort of frenemies. They're in these on-again, off-again feuds with each other. And Beefheart at some point will say, this is a quote, man, Frank Zappa is the most disgusting character I've ever encountered. He was trying to market me as a goddamn freak. The gall of a man. And <laughs> the striking gall. back, the, the gall, gall of, of the man. man. <laughs> And striking back, Frank is on the record saying that Beefheart was an asshole and was no longer creative. But old friends are old friends, right? And so in the mid-70s, Beefheart's in some bad business deals, and he needs a job. And Frank will agree to take him out with Mothers of Invention as their guest vocalist on what will become known as the Bongo Fury Tour. Now, by the end of this, there is some resentment about the whole situation, and after the couple months that the, the tour is, the two aren't really speaking again. And, but this this rumor has a perfect setting. A, a two-month tour where the two who are in battle in this bit, bitter rivalry, they're on stage every night. So what a better way to slay your rival than to turn this, them on stage and say, uh, would you like to compete in a gross-out contest? <laughs> <laughs> so you can totally see how this rumor came to be, right? Like two larger than life characters forced together on stage, neither really wanting to be subjugated. And most of the music world really doesn't understand these guys anyway. 
That's totally true, right? So here's Far Out Magazine that described this legend uh, that Michael was asking about. The story goes that while Zappa and Beefheart shared a stage, shredding as they did, they became embroiled in the aforementioned Sport of Kings, a gross-out contest. Rumor has it that after the contest heated up and allegedly saw Beefheart up the ante and take a dump on stage, likely please himself (laughs) with what he assumed would be a decisive blow in the gross out stakes. It's hard to top actual poo enter (laughs) Frank Zappa. According to legend upon seeing the pile of excrement Zappa did what any sane front man would do, scooped it up and put the poop in his mouth as he did. It's the stuff of nightmares and not exactly the kind of thing you want to see at a gig. So here's the million-dollar question. Mm-hmm. Did this happen? Let me answer by stating a couple things that did happen with Zappa on stage. One notable performance from this period had Zappa inviting a group of U.S. Marines on stage to dismember a plastic doll dressed up as a Vietnamese baby. Ooh. I heard that, too, Ooh, and yikes. that's crazy. But that was a thing. Let's just yeah. scoot right by that one. Number two, another saw concert goers sprayed with whipped cream through a hose fed through the hind quarters of a toy giraffe. <laughs> yeah, so this is <laughs> this is important because so there's weird. a Frank Zappa quote that you've like maybe seen on your weird college roommate's bedroom wall or something that says you can't write a chord ugly enough to say what you want to say sometimes so you have to rely on a giraffe filled with whipped cream. Like that's a Frank Zappa quote. That's what he's referring to. <laughs> yeah, it's his it's self-reflexive of his art. Um, I also read of shows where he brought strippers on stage or had band members simulate sex acts in a comedic way but when it but see what i did there when it comes to the fecal matter zappa has always been quick to deny that he says in the real frank zappa book which my buddy doug who bought his first guitar like that book is in the studio um the other fantasy is that i once took a shit on stage this has been propounded with many variations uh, read this next part of the of his quote i was said. in a london club called the speakeasy in 67 or 68 and a member of the group called the flock who had been recording for Columbia at the time, came over to me and said, dude, you're fantastic. When I heard about you eating shit on stage, I thought that guy's way, way out there. And I said to them, I never ate shit on stage. And he looked really depressed, like I had just broken his heart. (laughs) For the records, folks, I never took a shit on stage, and the closest I ever came to eating shit anywhere was at a Holiday Inn buffet in Fayetteville, North Carolina in 1973. End quote. Best joke of this podcast. (laughs) Brought to you by... Frank Zappa. And <laughs> it's really good. So, okay. So, Michael, we. It, I don't think it happened. I, I think it, it is a, a rumor that has been assigned to Frank Zappa and has sort of wormed its way through popular culture and, and you know, borrowed from and it become different things to different bands and different people. But I think that that's probably the origin you were looking, looking for. But I will say, the mere idea of it all does seem to have unleashed this templated rumor, this crazy speculation. Um, and it inadvertently, I think, has served as a template for performers who like to use the toilet on stage. <laughs> yeah. Have we talked about Gigi Allen a lot? I can't. We're like we, over two hundred episodes. We in. mention him at, in passing a lot. I will say that, but I, I feel like we have to mention him here. Yeah. So I saw Gigi Allen once, and that was enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I saw the Murder Junkies without Gigi Allen right after he died. <laughs> And they had a scab singer 
Um, but I saw him do crazy. When I went to see him, my college advisor, I don't know if I've told this story. My college advisor went to that show mm-hmm. and I turned around and I didn't know how to tell him and be like, Dr. Wilkinson, Gigi Allen is right behind you and he has on no clothes and he's covered in <laughs> shit and blood. So I've seen him. I saw his penis because he's nude the whole time and his shows were brawls. And I, I used to live with a guy, rest in peace, Brian Williams, who had a video. He loved Gigi Allen where one guy tackled Gigi in this little stage and then everyone jumps on top. And one by one, they just start peeling off. And as they continue to peel off, they get down to the bottom and he stands right up like nothing has happened. And then he goes back to trying to beat everybody, beat everybody up. Oh my God. Have I ever talked, have I ever talked about the GG Mike? That's the funny thing. The uh, Mike? I don't know. Tell, tell me. Okay. This is a, a very personal good friend of mine told me that a friend of his that was a sound guy at this venue, and I forget which city it was, they had a mic called the GG Mike. And so when a band would come in and the front man was rude to the sound people, the monitor guys, the crew, anybody there, they'd reach in the drawer and take out that microphone that Gigi stuck up his ass. And that singer got to sing with the Gigi mic. Oh, my God. That's excellent. Uh, So all this research reminded me of a case of public urination that haunted me as a child that I had sort of forgotten about until I, I was doing the work on this episode. And that was Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon. Yeah. This was I, new to me, by the way. Oh, really? You didn't know this? Okay, so mm-hmm. I didn't really hear that band other than No Rain. I remember hearing that as a kid in elementary school and thinking it was cool. But in high school, someone was like, I was like, oh, the No Rain band? And they're like, you have no idea, dude. You have no idea. And they played me that record. And if you've never heard the song Sleepy House, I think I've probably said this on the show before, stop what you're doing, pause this, and pull up Sleepy House by Blind Melon. Shannon Hoon, absolutely unbelievable. But I... I always thought that that music didn't sound like pissing on your fan sort of music. Like, right. Yeah. Frank Zappa Dude. music does sort of captain Beefheart's weird. Uh, GG Allen, of course, sounds like you're going to do something weird, but I, I never thought that music sounded weird. No, no. It, and, and that first record holds up, dude. 100 they all do i mean there's not that many there's really two and then there's the nico after he dies which is b-sides and stuff too and so you you, i mean you don't have a whole lot of output from those guys and i listened to soup today and i was like good god this band was so good yeah and i i still listen to the first record interesting fact i was on the campus entertainment board in college and we booked blind melon Oh my god! And the op- the opening act was Alice Donut, who was on Alternative Tentacles. Uh-huh. They were on Jello Biafra's yeah. label, yeah. opening up for <laughs> for Al- for uh, for Blind Melon. I miss most of it because someone with Blind Melon's management went and like grabbed grab this girl's camera and destroyed it. And so I was like doing emotional rescue for this <laughs> poor nineteen year old college student. It's like her camera um, that some prick like did that or whatever. And have you seen that? I, I put this in the show notes where at Woodstock 94, people really loved Bly Mellon's performance there. And he was 100% absolutely certifiably, truly dosed on acid a lot. And you can tell just like how, how the show goes. It's like kind of all over the place. And the post interview uh, that he has, 
but the show is still like super fantastic. There's a performance in the show notes from about a month before he died in 1995. It's literally probably like within the week of his 28th birthday. So he barely, barely misses the 27 club. He just barely missed it. And and, in this video, short hair, which I never associate with Shannon Hoot. And he is a weird looking guy with short hair. There was a reason he grew that hair out. And watching that voice come out of that dude is still remarkable. Like if you are just not familiar with that band, go spend 10 minutes watching that video. It is just oh it's so good uh but i was able to find an actual review of the show from halloween night of 1993 where shannon hoon took the stage dressed in his birthday suit nothing here's a piece of that review the guy who wrote it his name's steve newton i thought singer shannon hoon was getting into the spirit of things by wearing some sort of flesh-colored outfit with maybe a dark fig leaf or something covering ah, up his naughty, his naughty bits. That's his pubic hair. Yeah. Uh, to my dismay, and probably that of the other 13,000 plus people in attendance, the long-haired dude was stark naked, stumbling around, around the catchy chords of Tones of Home. Great song. I'm sorry. So this is Shannon talking. I'm sorry, but I'm just having fun. Who proceeded to simulate sex with a guy dressed in the Bumblebee costume. <laughs> and by the time the still naked hoon led the band into their biggest hit, No Rain. I was kind of tired of watching his pasty white butt bounce <laughs> around the stage, but I must admit that he caught my attention again when he started peeing all over the stage and then aimed his weenie. This is what this guy put in the article. Aimed his weenie at the poor folks in the front row. And considering the duration of Hoon's <laughs> urination, it looked like a good pee. But a chorus of booze <laughs> went up anyway. And the Vancouver police, this is like a Jim Morrison thing all over again. They didn't think it was a good pee either because they arrested Hoon afterwards for indecency. Can I can I shout out to a college age Steve Newton who wrote that review back in 1993? Because he did an excellent job. It's like really well paced and hilarious. And I mean, this is gross. Like, I just want to say if there's somebody right now who's just like shaking their head being like, you guys are being so immature. Yeah, I mean... It's disgusting. Uh, if you want to get involved in the show, it's it, it is we are the story guys at gmail.com. We, uh, clearly nothing is off limits here for the most part. We will take suggestions. So send them to us. It's we are the story guys at gmail.com if you want to uh, hear us talk about ridiculous stuff or make playlists or just hear outtakes from the show. Uh, make sure and join the Patreon. Uh, and don't pee on anybody. Try not to do that when you go to work tomorrow, whatever you're doing, wherever you're listening to this, just you know, don't go there. At all. Hey, uh, and, and what should people keep doing until next time? I had an idea of what to tell people to do, but it sounded really gross. I'm just going to say, keep telling stories. <laughs> Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.